This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is sponsored by the Sotheby's Institute of Art. With campuses in London, New York, Los Angeles, and online, Sotheby's Institute is the global leader in art business education. Offering master's programs, 15-week intensive courses, summer study, continuing in executive education, and online courses. I'm actually an alumni of Sotheby's Institute. I did the art business master's program in London. Find out more about the Sotheby's Institute of Art at sotheby'sinstitute.com. This week's episode is also brought to you by Artbase. Did you know that Artbase is the best love software in the art world? Artbase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art and your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports. Even use it on your iPad or iPhone at art fairs or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy Artbase clients all over the world. Artbase is the right software for your art business. Visit artbase.com to find out more. Thanks for downloading the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're joined by Christopher Bedford, director of the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Chris, it's great having you on. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You joined the Rose Art Museum in 2012 at an interesting time in which the museum hadn't had a permanent director for, I think, about three years after some publicity issues when the university initially stated they were going to close the museum and sell off some of the art and the permanent collection, and that was in response to the global financial crisis. Thankfully, that didn't actually transpire. However, when you joined the Rose, you entered a somewhat rough situation as a result of some of the negative publicity by the university's initial plans. I'm curious, what was your strategy about the best way to move past that and how would you assess how you've done so far with the museum? Yeah, that was an interesting lead-off question, very direct. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I, I will say that I th- going um, rewinding, one runs the risk of um, seeing every step that we've taken towards our present success as being one that followed a uh, premeditated sort of roadmap, and uh, that would be probably be obscuring the truth. I I had a very good sense. Um, arriving at the Rosen Brandeis, that there was significant uh, Brandeis trustee and administration support for the resurgence of the Rose. So it was really that base level of advocacy that caused me to think that it was less of a risk to take on the directorship um, than others perhaps might suppose looking in from the outside. That in combination with um, a core, very committed staff, the astonishing quality of the collection, and um, a rigorous, laudable exhibition history was my logic for waiting in. Um, once I got there, there were many, um, I would say, critical and uh, uh, coincident priorities. So one was to rebuild the staff. Another one was to build the board from one to what it is today, which is closing in on 30. Um, reanimate the acquisition schedule, draw attention to the quality of the collection, and then develop an exhibition schedule that would take us through the first chapter of our rebuilding and on to the next. So um, those were all accomplished in pretty short order. I think I can say that our exhibition schedule is um, on a par with any institution in New England, let's say North New York, focused on the post-war period. Um, Our staff has been rebuilt from almost tripled in size since the time um, I came on board, and probably the most significant development has been a resurgence um, in our board of advisors, who now, as I said, are close to 30 members, ranging from artists to uh, Boston-based philanthropists to 
collectors uh, based in places as far flung as Chicago, uh, Tel Aviv, and Los Angeles. So it's a truly, it's an ambitious, very internationally spirited board, and um, all eager to write the next chapter in the Rosa story. And we, you know, we often talk about Sam Hunter, the founding director, and his very prescient investment in the artists that formed his peer group during the period of time that he was emerging as a as a voice in the art world. And so we try to marshal that level of ambition and embeddedness in the present to imagine our future. And it's pretty astonishing at this point. We've been uh, there's been a lot of hard work. We've also been extremely lucky. Um, in the advocates we've managed to attract. So we're well-positioned, I think. Yeah, I think Brandeis's its museum was really unique and its permanent collection is really incredible. And for those of our listeners that don't know, I actually attended Brandeis in the mid-2000s. And while there, I had the opportunity to work with the registrar at the Rose Art Museum. So I was frequently in the back of the museum working with and around the many incredible artworks uh, that make up the Rose Art Museum's permanent collection. But for our listeners yeah. who aren't familiar with the Rose... Tell us a bit about the makeup of the permanent collection, and you mentioned Sam yeah. Hunter, uh, kind of the origins behind how the museum was able to acquire such great artworks shortly after the museum right. was established. Right. No, that's an, that's an excellent question. Um, so the the short way to answer it is to say that so Sam was trained in um, civic museums, most notably MoMA, and um, so his eye was always on, let's say, quality as the best path to teachability, as opposed to teachability with um, a secondary eye towards quality. So he, his effort was always to build a collection that would be on a par with um, those you might see in a bigger civic institution. And to do that, rather than, um, you know, with the founding of the museum at Brandeis, develop a spotty teaching encyclopedic collection, he instead decided to focus on the art of the present, which involved considerable speculation in the significance of those figures going forward. So uh, he was given, this is a mythic story, he was given $50,000 by um, a university supporter to go to New York and develop what would become the core collection of the Rose, with the condition that, one, he wasn't to spend more than $50,000, and two, he was not permitted to spend more than $5,000 per object. And so with that, um, with that, those parameters... He bought work by the likes of Rauschenberg, um, Jasper Johns, Ellsworth Kelly, Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, etc., and so forth. So essentially the most lauded, significant, and valuable passage in the development of American art history. Uh, he was very connected to those, to those artists, and he was pretty audacious in what he bought, um, not necessarily going after prototypical examples of each artist, but maybe a work that represented where the person was going next. Um, and a really, I, I always point to a poignant example of that is uh, the painting Blue and White Bales with Kelly from 1961 that's in our collection, I think particularly poignant since Ellsworth just passed away and only very recently received a honorary doctorate from Brandeis University. So he's connected in various ways um, to the Rose and we're grateful for that. But when... Sam was looking at a painting by Ellsworth. Um, he was accompanied at that point by the president of the university, Abe Sacker, and uh, they were looking at various easel-scale paintings. And it was, in fact, Sacker himself who looked in the corner and saw a very, very large, uncharacteristically large blue and white painting um, by Ellsworth. 
and said, you know, Sam, I really think we should consider that. And at that point, it was a, it was as I said, it was a very ambitious scale. It was unprecedented and also a body of work. They made the decision to purchase that for the museum's permanent collection, and it's now among a handful of icons that we associate with the rose. So there was a level of uh, audacity and risk-taking at the beginning that I really appreciate and try to keep alive in our programming going forward. You know, we have a lot of collectors that listen to the podcast. Do you say there are certain uh, things that collectors could take away in terms of how they could build their own personal collections from Sam's approach to how he went about acquiring artworks initially for the museum? Yeah, I mean, I think research and art history and understanding of art history are always vital to developing any sense of a collection, whether it's institutional or private. And um, Sam was a student of art history. He wrote histories of art. And I think he understood both um, uh, academically, let's say, and intuitively that the history of art is a progression of doors opening and closing. And as one door opens, another closes, and et cetera, and so forth. So you have to look at artists that appear to be, in your view, opening a new door um, in such a way that, that history is acknowledged um, and then also surpassed. I think he was, he was very, very good at that. Um, another thing you can't really teach is uh, taste and having an extraordinary eye. And he was blessed with both of those things, too, thankfully for us. Um, and I, I, I think also he was passionate and relied on gut instincts and was willing to take calculated risks to build something that he thought was held, held the promise of being great. And um, I think that's what's very moving about the Rose Collection. Um, he set a sort of bar, not only of quality, but of feel in those original works. And so when we think about building our collection in the present, we look back for examples um, of work that perhaps has been ignored for a variety of reasons historically, and we flesh out our post-war story based on those um, based on those gaps in collective historical understanding. And then um, we, we look for emerging and mid-career figures that we think are propelling that story forward in the present. So it's, it's exciting. It has to be, um, you have to, I think you have to have both eyes open, one looking back and the other one looking forward. Um, I'll say that one thing we've tried to which is a little bit different from Sam's approach, is to dovetail quite specifically with the social justice mission of Brandeis and to try and enact that commitment on a collecting level. So um, a good example of that would be looking at art from the 60s and 70s made by women and artists of color who have been traditionally excluded from the canon, whose works are um, woefully undervalued. And we've been adding a lot of those very important figures to the story that we tell um, as a way to diversify our story uh, in such a way that we were brought into alignment with those with the, the central and most sacred values of Brandeis, which have to do with social justice, um, equality, academic excellence, um, et cetera, and so forth. So that's, that's extremely exciting as a way to think about collection development. As director of the Rose Art Museum, how do you balance exhibiting works from the permanent collection versus organizing exhibitions featuring art from outside the museum's collection that you're passionate about? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. I can answer it very specifically based on the past three years and then nod towards the future a little. Um, I think we, we as a staff made a collective decision that we would emphasize exciting, uh, scholarly, changing exhibitions, focused both on art history and on the living present, um, as a way to regenerate international interest in the Rose's pro exhibition program. So for the past three years, 
we've distorted our attention um, quite radically towards that approach to programming the various galleries at the Rose. Um, that is, has, as a calculated gamble, has paid off. Um, we have attracted significant critical attention. In fact, um, one of our recent major group shows, Pretty Raw, which was about the legacy of Helen Frankenthaler, uh, won Best Group Exhibition in Boston for 2015. So our embeddedness in ideas and scholarship has paid off. I will say that going forward, imagining the next chapter in our story, uh, we were in the initial stages of thinking about expanding the museum. And the purpose there is almost exclusively the presentation of the permanent collection um, for the first time in our history in its entirety. Uh, first and foremost, as a teaching tool for the university um, and also as a center of gravity for a post-war story in Boston. So that's uh, that will be the next three or four years of our history. Um, the effort being to eventually balance an exciting changing exhibition program with um, a rotating permanent collection installation. As we said, the Rose is on Brandeis University's campus, just outside of Boston and Waltham, Massachusetts. What, to what extent does the museum and yourself try to engage with the student body, and ha- how do you do so? I think that's central to everything we do. It's there. The faculty and students and staff of Brandeis are, I always refer to them as the first concentric circle of our audience. So that's, that would be the first. The next one would be Boston. The next, let's say, um, the New England, uh, beyond that, the U.S. and the international art world. So my feeling is that if we serve that immediate community, uh, the faculty, students, and staff of Brandeis, as vigorously and thoughtfully as possible, then each successive concentric circle will be similarly, um, similarly invigorated by what we do. So we try to bring students into the museum as much as possible, um, both casually and socially and through scheduled um, engagement with the curriculum. Uh, We're closer now than ever before with the art history department and studio departments at the university. Uh, We have faculty who sit on our board of advisors. Um, We have a director of academic programs as well as a curator now. So that the structure of the institution is set up to insinuate itself as much as possible into the uh, day-to-day functioning of the university, as well as into the, the you know the core the core spirit of the institution. And Chris, what can you tell us about any exhibitions you have planned for this upcoming year? Well, we have a lot. That's a you know the, my favorite question to answer. So thank <laughs> you. Um, we have we have a variety of shows coming up, and I'll just point to a, a few highlights. But this is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so they're looking way out to the beginning of 2017. We're doing an enormous Louise Nelson show that will be housed in our um, Lois Foster wing, which is hugely exciting and probably the most ambitious exhibition the Rose has ever undertaken. And we have a significant history of ambitious shows. Uh, we have the first retrospective of the American pop artist Rosalind Drexler coming up um, in February and actually opens on February 11th. Um, we're doing an enormous installation with the preeminent video, American video artist Sharon Lockhart, LA-based, coming up as well. Um, project exhibitions with Tommy Hartung, um, which we're excited about. And uh, an exhibition of David Reed's painting, which is being organized by Christopher Wool, um, in collaboration with Katie Siegel, who's our curator at large. So we have, this is, I could go on and on, but we have a lot coming up. Uh, most of it relates to 
collection development um, in some way or another and points the way towards the next uh, the next chapter, as I said, which will be very collection permanent collection installation focused. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and updating us on how things are going at the Rose. Congrats on all of your success there so far, and best of luck moving forward. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Bye. Thanks again to ArtBase for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Did you know that ArtBase is the best love software in the art world? That's because ArtBase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art in your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports. Even use it on your iPhone or iPad at art fairs or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy ArtBase clients all over the world. ArtBase is the right software for your art business. Visit ArtBase.com to find out more. This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast was also sponsored by the Sotheby's Institute of Art. With campuses in London, New York, Los Angeles, and online, Sotheby's Institute is the global leader in art business education. Offering master's programs, 15-week intensive courses, summer study, continuing in executive education, and online courses. I'm an alumni of Sotheby's Institute. I did the art business master's program in London. To find out more about the Sotheby's Institute, visit sotheby'sinstitute.com.